could he do that? Are you on Donate What? Charles Darwin. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brabber and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we are coming to you all pretty much at the end of the first round. Now we're not all the way there. We still have game seven of Clippers Mavs remaining in what has been a phenomenally fun series thus far. But we also have a second round series starting today in Nets Bucks. So today, that's going to be the primary emphasis of this show, previewing each second round series, highlighting some of the keys to those. But first, we have to start with some of the first round action that is still ongoing or just recently concluded. Because obviously, we have the defending champions out of the picture, and we have the other LA team in peril, but fighting hard against this incredibly fun Mavs team, led, of course, by Luka Doncic. So let's just start there, Logan. This has been a tumultuous series. Obviously, the Mavs go up a commanding 2-0. Then they lose two in a row. Then they have that incredible Luka performance in Game 5. They're back on top. And now in Game 6, we saw Kawhi with one of his best performances ever, really, in a high-stakes situation. What's your feeling with this series right now? Who do you think comes out on top in Game 7? And what are some of the keys to either team achieving that? You know, and it wasn't just offensively for what Kawhi did in this last game, uh, Carson. This is the best I've seen Luka Doncic, I think, defended all year long. And it was because they said, Kawhi, this is your <laughs> this is your job. Go out there and clamp him up. And they did a lot better job of switching on the pick and roll. Um, a lot of the things we discussed earlier in the season, I mean, earlier in the season, earlier in the series defensively, they made those adjustments. And uh, I'll be interested to see if... Uh, they continue to make those. Honestly, Carson, we have harped on this all playoffs long for the Blazers, for the Nuggets, for the Clippers, for the Mavericks. Game seven, I'm going with whoever shoots better better from behind the arc. And honestly, at this point in the series, I'm surprised that the Clippers are even still here with how poor some of these guys have performed. I mean, <laughs> you get Paul George shooting under like under 40%. You know, isn't horrible if you're around 35 to, to 40. You know, he's shooting 32% this series, and nobody else outside of Kawhi is over 40%. That's just an uncharacteristic formula for the Clippers to to come away and even force a Game 7 here. Obviously, it needed a superhuman performance from Kawhi uh, last night. But um, I am going to... If I had to place my money, um, I am betting on Luka in one game. Um, the Clippers have been spotty, and uh, I trust him to go superhuman more than I trust the Clippers' top two guys. Uh, and I expect the supporting cast to shoot a little better. And I know it's it's a tired cliche. I'm tired of just saying whoever, whatever team shoots better in Game 7 or this next game is going to win. But uh, in this series, that's what I depend on. And um, I expect the Mavs to shoot a little better. What about you? My feeling is actually that the Clips win. And this is sort of what I've been trending towards the whole time. After they went down 2 nothing, and everybody had written them off. I said, I think it goes 7. I didn't want to pick a side there. But then after they won Game 3, I said, okay, I think the Clips are winning in 7 just because some of these things have to average out. And we still haven't seen it with the shooting. As you mentioned, this is one of the greatest shooting teams ever. Maybe the greatest shooting team ever. They had 8 guys shoot 40-plus percent from deep this regular season. They shot 41.4% as a team, I believe. That's the 4th best mark ever, and it's obviously on really high volume. And they haven't shot like this that this entire series. And what's remarkable is, you talk about how much of this series is just about who shoots better. The Clips have actually won two games in which the Mavs have shot better from deep. So the Mavs have shot better from beyond the arc in five of six, and the Clips are still sitting here at three games apiece. They're only 35% from deep in this series. I just think that has to even out. And I'm betting on 
the Mavs not sustaining this superhuman shooting that they certainly were at over the first three games and that they've shown flashes of ever since then and that we see a little bit more of that from the Clippers and we see them show the strength that defined them throughout this regular season and also in closing time I still fear Kawhi more than Luka. Who's the better basketball player at this point? Luka Doncic. But who has the better skill set for just assassin-like late-game shot-making? Kawhi Leonard. And as we touched on with the segment we did on Is Dane the Clutchest Player Ever last week, or earlier this week, I think Kawhi is one of the best skill sets ever because of the ruthlessness with which he can get to his spots, how easily and how consistently he can just pull in your face from that mid-range area. And we saw that fully on display in Game 6. So I just think... We obviously know that the Mavs don't have that second difference maker off the bounce. I mean, THJ has been phenomenal this series. He's been shooting the hell out of the ball. But does he compare as a second creator anything close to Paul George? Of course not. So I'm just going to bet on the Clippers. I think they're more talented. And I think they are the better shooting team. They just haven't shown it. And even though, again, Luka is probably the best player in this series... I don't know if he's the guy I want most in a game seven when he can still be affected by nerves and stuff. I mean, the free throw shooting is legitimate at this point. And if those tough step backs aren't falling, he doesn't have an automatic counter like a Kawhi does where he can just get to a spot in the mid-range time and time and again and kill you that way in late game situations. Or if he is getting consistent penetration and he's creating for others, then it's up to those guys knocking down shots. And I don't know if I can trust them to do that every single time out when they've already done it so much more than the Clippers this series and they haven't pulled decisively ahead. Now, I've got a few follow-up questions for you, Carson, but I do want to briefly touch on that for a second. I mean, have you ever seen a superstar just randomly struggle with free throws like this out of the blue? Like, I can't remember ever seeing something like this. Russell Westbrook is the guy who I think of in 2017-18. Yeah, but I mean, with Russ, it's... I'm not saying it's expected, but it's a little more typical of a guy like Russ. I don't know, you'd assume Luka, such a knockdown shooter, that free throws would just be a given. Um, I guess have you ever seen a shooter of this caliber um, struggle this much from the line? I don't know. I guess Russ isn't of this caliber as an overall shooter, but he was a hell of a free throw shooter. But no, I haven't seen it very often. And I think that's one of the things that remains fascinating about Luka is he has the talent of a true all-time great and in year three is playing at a level that shouldn't be possible, but he also still conducts himself like a third-year player sometimes. And he's fearless, no question, for the most part. He makes some massive shots and he is not scared to be the best player on the court at all times. But he's obviously emotionally volatile, and the free throw line thing that we have seen is legitimate, and it's fully in his head. Fully in his head, you can see it. So it's absolutely rare. I do think we've seen things that approach this, but the extent to which it was affecting him for the first five games, very, very rare. Got you. So do you think, uh, from what you saw out of last game, are there any major adjustments you think either team needs to make heading into Game 7? Not really. I love that the Clippers went small. That's what you highlighted after game one or game two, maybe. And I think that it has been effective for them. And I think it's hilarious that the Mavs have countered that by going huge and playing Bobon at the five and playing him a bunch of minutes. I think it's been a really fun contrast. Maybe if you're the Mavs, you take Bobon back out of the starting five because of the fact that you just want to be a little quicker on the defensive end. But I also think he's been pretty effective in punishing the Clippers for going small in stretches. So it's always going to be a double-edged sword there. So I think that we might just play this thing out. Like, I don't know if there are any more big-time adjustments left to be made. Ty Lue has done what he had to do. He's played Rondo the big minutes. He's taken Pat Bev out. And he has gone to this small ball lineup. 
and the Mavs have countered with the adjustments of their own. But at the end of the day, this is going to be about Luka creating shots for guys, them knocking them down, and what can Kawhi, PG, and this cast of shooters do on the other end? And that's going to decide it. But I also think Kawhi needs to guard Luka as much as possible in this game, 100%. That is beyond a shadow of a doubt. And in Game 7, I expect him to do that because this is a do-or-die situation. And as SVP asked him, SVP asked him on the post-game interview, what do you guys have to do to win in Game 7? And he said, we have to get a win. So Kawhi's locked in, and I would be scared of that man right now. And I just have that little bit of a gut feeling that he's going to be the one to pull it out. Now, I mean, I, I completely agree that I think Kawhi is the clutcher of the two. Um, so let's think. I, I want to go big picture here for a second. Do you think that if Kawhi loses this game, is he done? Is he done in L.A.? Is he gone? Oh, 100%. It is beyond a shadow of a doubt over, in my opinion. And then we just get to see him continue on one of the most fascinating NBA journeys ever. Like, he'll be on his fourth team in six years. That's wild. And he's going to go down as one of the 30 greatest players ever. And we've never seen a guy hop around like that at this level as far as being an all-time talent. And so, look, I'm all here for that. I also think, though, that the Clippers can still make a legitimate run here and that when things come all together and when they play their best basketball, because of the shooting, they can beat literally anybody. I mean, with the Lakers out, and I know everybody knows this, this is stating the obvious, the West is wide open. I mean, it is anybody's anybody's race out here. Yeah, and it's going to be remarkably fun to see it all play out. And I think, honestly, it's going to be great for the sport of basketball, for people who actually like basketball, not for people who sit there and talk about ratings or say, I'm only going to watch if the L.A. teams are in it. Because what kind of weirdo fan are you? Like, do you really care that much about the market size if you're not even from the market? Just appreciate the basketball product that is being put out there that is remarkable. The Jazz are an amazing team. The Bucks are an amazing team. The Suns, Lord knows, are an amazing team. And it's going to be fun to see all of these squads compete in a relatively open playing field. And I cannot wait to see it all play out. Let's reflect for a moment on what we did just see with the Lakers. Because obviously... They are now out of the picture, Logan, and that means that with all of the mockery I may have targeted towards you about having the Nuggets as your title pick, your champion is alive for longer than mine was. This is obviously very strange. We didn't get to see AD play down the stretch of this series, and I think that that obviously changed everything because he was their best player in games two and three. But what do we make of this for the Lakers? What ultimately was their undoing, and where do they go from here? I mean, it's tough. Uh, Obviously, their undoing was... AD going down with the injury, we knew that um, that they'd never be able to, they wouldn't be able to win this series without him. Um, I don't know, man. It's weird because it's not just like LeBron wasn't giving full effort, and and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fully criticize him for. It's weird because I mean we just talked about this with Peyton, but it's like, do I criticize him for not giving his all in these big moments when? was necessary. Like, I don't think they affect the outcome of the series. I think the Suns always come away, even if he's uh, giving effort in those big moments. But it was strange watching him argue with refs, even down to this last game where he's not getting back and giving full effort defensively. Um, I think there's a bigger issue, though. I mean, outside of that one game, uh, game two, where I genuinely thought the Lakers were at full health, where they would uh, come out and they looked like this championship contender, LeBron didn't look like himself most of this series. He didn't look like the same dominant force that we have known. So where do they go from here, man? That's the toughest question of all to answer. You have two potentially very uh, injury-riddled superstars here in LeBron and AD. You don't know what they're going to look like next season. AD, I think, just has questions on the rest of his career because he's never fully healthy. 
As for the rest of this roster, what young talent do you have to build around? This has been a problem with everywhere LeBron goes, whether it be Miami, whether it goes back to Cleveland. You lose all your young assets because you're going to swing for the fences to get assets now. They got their one championship ring. They have nothing to build on for the future. I don't know. Like, I don't think this is not a... I wonder if this is it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think LeBron comes back next year and can be an otherworldly takeover beast like we saw in this regular season. I think this is, I think this is it. Like, I think this may be a, the last run that we saw where LeBron could genuinely carry a team by himself. And I wonder if the Lakers have to go out and once again, find some more help. Do you think that LeBron has forfeited the best player in the world title? Honestly, with the way we've seen Kawhi play in these playoffs, with the way that we have seen, I, I, I don't know if I can say KD yet because KD played the Celtics in their horrible defense. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think that I might go, the three guys that I'd highlight are probably Jokic. Yeah, Jokic, um, Kawhi, maybe Luka, KD even. I, LeBron literally just looked like, I'm not going to say a shell of himself, but he was not the same. He wasn't the best player in the world in these playoffs in this one series. Yeah, and I will say, I think that he went out swinging. I mean, he started game six weird, but he ended up taking 15 shots at the rim, and that's what we had been asking for is, okay, LeBron, be aggressive, impose yourself physically like we know you are like we know you can because you're such an utterly dominant athlete. But I still think this is his worst playoff series in a long time. It's his lowest scoring playoff series in five years. It's his lowest scoring full postseason ever and he only really had his grip on like one full game. And that was game three. And even then, you could argue it wasn't a full game. It was only in spurts. Like, it's not like he put up 35, 10, and 10. But you saw the bursts of just explosive athleticism. But he wasn't consistently the best player in this series. If you're giving me the question, who is the MVP of this series? It's Devin Booker. And that's not just because he won. It's because he was consistently imposing his will on the game in a way that LeBron wasn't. And he had moments where I think, okay, that's the best player in the world, where he just, in transition, bullies a bunch of guys, or he just is backing somebody down and spins out and finishes through contact. But it was just not vintage LeBron for 48 minutes in a single game here. And there's one really weird stat to me, which is that he attempted 3.8 free throws a game in this series. And part of that, I think, is reflective of him settling a lot. But also, it was like when he was barreling into the rim... He wasn't drawing illegal contact. I mean, he wasn't drawing a lot of fouls, which I just think takes away from some of the easy offense for him. And this is obviously an incredibly difficult situation. When Drummond was playing, he was playing with at least one non-shooter at all times. And uh, when Gasol was playing, obviously you have some floor spacing, but he just didn't have other respectable creators out there alongside him. But with what Jokic just did, with obviously a tremendously flawed MPJ as the second guy compared to what LeBron just did... I don't know. I don't want to overreact to one series, but one series is a lot of basketball. And we also have a regular season that would tell you that Jokic is the better of the two at this point. And Jokic just never went away like LeBron did in so many stretches here. So it was a little alarming from him. And I don't know what's next. I mean, he's 36 years old. We can't expect him to be the same forever. And it's remarkable that coming into this year, he did still have that best player in the world belt. But it feels like everybody around him has gotten better and he just can't keep getting better forever. But when it comes to what's next for them, you dialed in on one of the things that obviously undid the Lakers, and that was just the shooting. They shot 30% from deep in this series, and Kuzma, Caruso, Matthews, and KCP were a combined 20 of 84 from deep. That's below 24% from four of the most crucial shooters on the floor 
for you guys. Like the guys you expect to be floor spacers and none of them could deliver. So obviously you have to improve that element of your roster. And that's what's so weird about how I just maintained my faith in the Lakers, even though I could tell you, I don't know if they shoot well enough. Every other team in the playoffs is a really high caliber shooting team or every other contender at the very least. And they just aren't. And I just held out faith and said last year they were able to get through it with just average shooting and guys will make enough shots and guys just didn't make enough shots. I wouldn't say that I wouldn't say that happened to you, Carson. I would say me and you got baited into after games two and three. I mean, this Lakers team looks so different yeah. in those two games. And yeah, I know we talked about their shooting. Also, something really weird about this. I know that, you know, they made moves to go out and get some shooters here, uh, during the regular season, during last offseason, getting Wesley Matthews, getting McLemore, getting Dennis Schroeder. I know shooting isn't a premium, but spot-up guys like that really don't cost that much. Like, you know, the Bucks went yeah. out and got Bryn Forbes for relatively cheap. Like, in today's NBA, it is the easiest to attain shooting than it ever has been. Why has it been such a struggle for the Lakers to just get depth at shooting? It's such an easy facet of the ballgame to find in today's NBA. I don't... It's just it's something that the Lakers should not have struggled with for the past two seasons. It should not have been this big a concern. It's it's so easy to just get guys who can knock down open threes. I completely agree. Rob Palinka has built two of the weirdest teams ever. Like, <laughs> insisting on playing AD alongside a traditional center, getting non-floor spacing bigs. It worked last year, but it was still weird. It still didn't make full sense, and it still probably wasn't what they should have done to be the absolute best version of themselves. And they had guys who you would expect to make shots in this series KCP is a 41% guy from deep this year. He just wasn't in this series. Wesley Matthews is a 38% career three-point shooter. He just didn't play at that level in this series. But you're right. It is inexcusable. And I think that that is one of the major areas they have to address in free agency. Because they have a bunch of free agents right now. They have Schroeder up for free agency. Keefe, who, by the way, every minute he played in this series was <laughs> insufferable. That dude is so bad. Drummond, Matthews, THT. Out of that group... I'm probably just bringing back Caruso and THT, and it depends on what they do elsewhere as far as Schroeder, because I think that really they should be trying to get a third star. I think Kyle Lowry would be fantastic here because of his versatility on the offensive end, but then also his ability to play high-level defense. Like His shooting, playmaking, on-ball, off-ball combo would be so great here. So if they get Lowry, let Schroeder walk. If not, I think you have to bring him back. Presuming he wants to come back because he doesn't seem to be the happiest in the world. But then... If you're bringing back Caruso and THT, just because I think you kind of have to with THT at this point, his shot creation is a little too intriguing. Like, he's never going to be a star, but the dude can get buckets. Then you just need real shooters. And when I look at this free agency market, as you mentioned, there are guys who are lethal shooters who you should be able to get for very cheap. JJ Redick is a free agent. Patty Mills is a free agent. You have to swing guys like that. And if they don't get a third star... I don't know if it matters. And that's what's so weird about this is we don't get to definitively say because in games two and three, they were able to win without shooting well because they just overpowered the opposition and because LeBron and AD were that good. And that's how they won the title last year. Maybe they could have done that again. It doesn't feel like they could have gotten all the way to the title. It certainly feels like they could have gotten through this series and probably would have, in my honest opinion, because again, AD was just firing on all cylinders. It would have been a battle. It probably still would have gone seven. And we're getting maybe too deep into the hypotheticals there. But I don't know that you can just run it back and say, okay, we'll chance it with that and we'll just improve the shooting. I think they're going to probably need to and are definitely going to try to do something more aggressive. I think Lowry is the guy. They wouldn't give THT up for him in a trade. That was ridiculous. But I think now that free agency comes around, 
I don't know how they would have to maneuver the cap, but everybody else is dispensable. All your $13 million contracts, your KCPs of the world, move those guys in a sign and trade, do what you got to do. Let these three consume 90 something percent of your cap and then just put guys on the minimum around them who can knock down shots. I agree. And I think the biggest spot to look at, uh, as you've touched on all year, even though, even with the, um, the roster makeup now, you've got a non-shooter in Drummond, a non-shooter in Trez. Literally, just go out and get a floor spacing five that you can play yeah. alongside AD if he doesn't want to run it. I mean, it solves so many of your little spacing issues. Also on that, dude, I don't know if there's anybody else on this roster that should be angrier than Montrez Harrell. I mean, what a what a fall from grace, man. Going from getting so many minutes last year on that Clippers team, playing, being a genuinely dominant rim runner, a lob threat, a really good agile defender, to being played out of a rotation by a guy who has zero offensive game and yeah. <laughs> couldn't beat me in a 40-yard dash. <laughs> I mean, I remember when it was announced that they were signing Trez, just being perplexed by it because I was like, what is his fit when it comes to meaningful minutes here? I don't know defensively where he fits. Offensively, you can't really play him alongside AD. And we saw all of that play out. And so disappointing for him. I mean, to go from sixth man of the year to a guy who has now been unplayable effectively in back-to-back postseasons, I don't know where he fits in in the league. I don't know what is next for him. But absolutely disappointing, frustrating, and career-altering yet again in these playoffs for Trez. Anything else on the Lakers or the Suns also on the flip side of that? I think... I'll save Suns talk for when we uh, get into the preview, but uh, no, I think I'm I think I'm all set on Lakers talk. Yeah, it is going to be fascinating to see what can they do in this offseason. Can they truly contend again? Is LeBron himself next time around? I'm not going to discount anything, and I think that AD, again, showed his value in these playoffs. Like, it was not the crummy AD that we saw in the regular season. Games two and three, he was imposing his will on the game, even if maybe he still wasn't 100%. And it was a little bit heartbreaking to see him try and go out there and play. Not sure how he was cleared even for a minute. The dude could barely walk, and that was pretty ridiculous. But he gave it his best effort. It wasn't meant to be this time around for the Lakers. They had the talent to go further, but maybe they didn't have the talent to go all the way because offensively they just did not have the firepower that almost every other contender has. So with that, let's move on to a quick reflection on a series that was defined by offensive firepower. Blazers, Nugs, obviously... The Nuggets end up coming out on top of that one in an awesome six-game series. After the Blazers fell, they fired Terry Stotts. Damian Lillard now says that he wants Jason Kidd in as head coach. I just made a whole video on Dame and how phenomenal he was and really why the Blazers can't be content with where they are and why they have to make drastic change in this offseason to ultimately retain Dame and make the most of this era. But what are some of your takeaways from this series, and what does all of this mean for Portland, who, again, couldn't get out of the first round despite having one of the greatest offenses ever this year? I mean, well, I'm going to ask you, Carson. I, you just did the video. What do you build around Damian Lillard to make the Blazers a contender? Well, I think that the most obvious thing they need to do is get a real game-changing rim protector. Because defensively, if you are going to try to keep Dame with CJ, which I don't think they necessarily should do, or Dame with really any defensive guard who is not a plus, you need to have a guy who can have a massive impact on the interior and take away those easy shots and compensate for the fact that you're looking at liabilities on the outside. I think Miles Turner is a guy who could change everything for this Portland team. I don't know what they do to get it, but I think that Nurk at this point 
just doesn't make sense. When you have a guy like Dame, you don't need a player like Nurk who has this really cool skill set of being able to do a little with his back to the basket, of having a little mid-range game. Obviously, his passing is so much fun, and he's certainly a solid defender. I just don't think he's game-changing enough there. But just get a guy whose role is more simple, who rolls hard to the bucket, who's a great athlete, who can knock down threes ideally, and who can protect the hell out of the rim. That's Miles Turner epitomized, and I think this would be an amazing situation for him. And then... I don't know if they can get a real star at the guard spot to replace CJ. I certainly think they should try, though. But this is what we've always talked about. This era of Portland basketball has been about finding the guys who could effectively cover up for CJ and Dame's inadequacies defensively on the wings and who could reliably knock down shots and keep defenses honest on the other end. And they just haven't found that combination. And at some point, you have to look in the mirror and say, okay, we haven't done enough. We have to take big swings. Now is the time to take big swings because Miles Turner alone doesn't turn you into a legitimate contender. Like it's a huge step forward, but you have to do more than that. This was year nine for Dame. He is better than he's ever been and your team is worse defensively than it's ever been. And you can't just be content with that and say, oh, Terry Stotts was the problem. Now we have Jason Kidd, fabled brilliant basketball coach (laughs) Jason Kidd, and everything is going to be fine for us. You have to really conduct a dramatic overhaul. And the other thing is obviously the depth here. It's just not enough. You can't have six guys you trust. You can't have everything fall apart when Dame is off the floor. You can't have everything fall apart when Nurk is off the floor and have to put Mello on Nikola Jokic. Like, that is embarrassing. And Ant Simons, I believe in the talent. I don't know if he's the guy here. Just, you have to kill free agency and you have to kill a couple of trades. And then maybe you can get into that contender conversation. It's going to be really hard to do, but you have to put all your chips on the table and just gamble because otherwise you are ensuring that Dame is going to leave at some point. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it is blow it all up time. And I don't mean get rid of Dame, but I mean everybody else on this roster, they just, they don't really fit around him. Like McCollum and Powell have amazing skill sets and they're such good shot creators off of the dribble by themselves. You don't need that when you have a guy this caliber of Dame. And to your point, Carson, Dame is a generational talent. He is one of the 10 best players in the world. You can't just... Guys like that don't sign in Portland. You know, I mean, you should be thanking your lucky stars that you drafted this guy nine years ago in 2012 and that he is still stuck around for so long after all of this incompetence. But I think you're exactly right. I don't think there is a single piece that works alongside here in Dame, especially you mentioned the big rotation, Nurkic and Cantor. Two complete non-factors on the defensive end alongside Dame. And I think the biggest one, the one that makes me scratch my head the worst, man, they swing, not for the fences, but they go out and they get Rocco, right? He's going to solve some of our issues. He can run the four and the five. Rocco got just... (laughs) I don't know, it was embarrassing watching him try to guard Jokic and MPJ. Like, Covington didn't even do a good job on... On backdoor cuts when Porter's cut into the basket, he didn't do anything right defensively. Even in theory when he's a piece that you think may work alongside Dame. Because he shot well on the offensive end, he didn't even play great defense. Like, I think it is... I think this offseason, you move everybody but Dame. Anybody whose contract is up, anybody that you can trade, I think you move everybody. I don't know if there's a single asset that I like here in this rotation. Am, Am I out of pocket, Carson? Is there anybody that you think needs to stay here? Yeah, I don't fully agree with that. I think that Rocco probably should stay just because it is so hard to find guys who are good enough at that 3 and D role. And Rocco is weird, but I wouldn't say that he did nothing right defensively here. I thought he admirably 
tried to guard Jokic in stretches. I mean, he's so outmatched physically, but he has such great hands and he's strong. And that's part of the value of him is that he can switch on to actual fives, actual bigs, as we saw him do famously in Houston and hold his own there. He's weird because he's not like crazy switchable because he's not crazy fast on his feet, but he has great length. He's super strong. He has great instincts. And he ended this year shooting 38% from deep. So after what was a rocky start to the year, he finished very strong and was 50% in these playoffs. He's a guy who knows his role. Obviously had a couple of frustrating missed dunks in that game five, but I think you hold on to him. And I think you probably hold on to Norm just because he is so valuable as just a microwave guy who, as you mentioned, can just assassinate people getting his own buckets and can also be lethal off the catch. We're talking about a 41% three-point shooter this year. So I like him. I think that he makes sense to retain and then maybe hold on to Melo just because of his value as a pure shooter. The thing with Norm is he's going to be a free agent this year. He's not going to opt into his $11 million player option. And then you're looking at paying him probably $20 million plus. That's when it becomes a question. But I do think he's valuable. But outside of that, Nurk, I think you move on from. CJ, I think you probably move on from. Cantor, forgettable at this point. But I don't know why you even have him on your roster if he can't play a playoff minute. Like, it's just ridiculous. When he's against a traditional center, by the way, and obviously it's the best center in the world, but that man is just unplayable when basketball actually matters. And yeah, it's time to tear a lot up. I think it's probably time for Neil Olshay, GM, to get out of there because guess what? He has had so many cracks at putting the right core around Dame. And I get that part of it is he's been trying to sustain the Dame-CJ duo, and that ties his hands a little bit, but he just hasn't done it. And we are now in panic mode for Portland because the Western Conference Finals run was fluky, honestly. It bought them a little bit of time, but Nurk hasn't been the same since then. And they've lost, obviously, a massive step defensively with Aminu and Harkless exiting the picture. And all the time that they bought themselves is now expired, and it it is do-or-die time. Like, act now or lose Dame forever. And I think they're probably going to hire Jason Kidd because that's what Dame has come out and publicly said that he wants. That'll be interesting. I don't know if that's exactly a winning move, but I do think it was only a matter of time before Kidd got a head coaching job somewhere. He's obviously existing in those circles right now. But it's time for dramatic overhaul, or you're just going to fall flat on your face and you're going to lose the best player you've had since Clyde Drexler. Yeah, I still don't know why Jason Kidd is held as highly as he is among free agent coaching circles, but uh, when you've had such a storied career, uh, you we knew he was going to get hired this offseason, either in Boston or Portland mm-hmm. or any of these other destinations. I don't know, man. I The West is only going to get tougher next season, I'm just, I don't know, man. I'm scared that this blows up and Portland doesn't even make the playoffs next season and we are looking at just a complete fall from grace. Oh, it's totally a possibility. Unless, again, they make big-time moves because you just can't be this bad defensively and win anything of consequence. It is not possible to be the third-worst defense ever by defensive rating and win a playoff series. And we saw why put on display, they could not stop a nosebleed against the Nuggets. Like, they were completely helpless On all three levels, really, it was just like everything was coming to the Nuggets so easily. And yeah, they can make bucket getting look pretty easy on their own end. Great for them. It wasn't enough to beat a team that is missing three of their four best guards. And that's inexcusable. So with that, I think that we're probably ready to move on to our second round preview. I don't know that there's that much that's interesting from other series that concluded that we hadn't already touched on. 
Grizzlies put up an admirable fight, obviously, but at the end of the day, the Jazz were just too good, as we knew and as we expected, and end up reeling off four straight after Donovan Mitchell comes back. The Wizards obviously couldn't even take out an Embiid-less Philly team, so I think that that tells you about really the state of where they're at as a franchise right now. But with that, let's talk about what's coming up for the Sixers in the second round series, obviously taking on the red-hot Atlanta Hawks, but we don't know what's going on with Joel Embiid. Right now it is undecided whether or not he's going to play in game one, or at least it is not publicly known. When you look at this series, what are some of the keys that stand out to you? So I've got a uh, biggest key and biggest concern for each team. I think the most interesting thing is the biggest concern here for Philadelphia, and that is obviously can they protect the paint and create reliable offense without Embiid. Uh, This season with Embiid, they have a defensive rating of 107. Without him, uh, they go up to 110.1. Not that big of a change, but offensively, they have an offensive rating of 119.1 with Embiid, and they drop nearly 10 points without him. Um, And I'm going to touch defensively first. I'm not really concerned about Philly all that much defensively without Joel Embiid. Now, I think, obviously, they're a much better defense. He is an imposing rim protector. He's strong down there. He can, You can put any, any uh, center of any physical abilities, if he's fast, if he's strong, if he can jump out of the building. Embiid can X those guys out. But honestly, with what they were running in that last game against the Wizards, I'm not all that concerned. You put Simmons and Tobias Harris in the paint or... Thibel, whoever. I mean, they were switching everything, and it looked really fluid against the Wizards. Granted, that was the Washington Wizards. I think against the Hawks, it may be a little bit of a different beast. You're going to have to slow down Capella. You are going to have to slow down Collins. It's going to be a lot tougher because those guys are real athletes. There's going to be a lot of lob throwing. There's going to be a lot of rolling, and it is going to be a heavy task if if those guards get switched onto them because I think that's a real concern. If I am the Hawks, all series long, I am trying to open up those switches with Trey Young. I'm going to get a screen set. I'm going to make you switch Seth Curry into the paint. I'm going to make you switch Matisse Thibel into the paint. Whatever mismatch I can expose, and there are going to be mismatches without Embiid on the floor, that is what I'm going to do for Atlanta. So my biggest concern, I think my biggest concern for Philly is more on the offensive end, if you were going to be able to rely on Ben Simmons and Tobias Harris to lead you. But... I am concerned a little bit defensively because I think the Hawks are going to be able to bait them into some really beneficial switches uh, just because Embiid's off the floor. But again, Philly is really talented on that end. And when you have a guy like Simmons and Harris, maybe I'm overstating uh, the impact that Embiid has in that paint. So I'm going to stick with Philly's offense for a second here because defensively, I do think they're still pretty well equipped. I mean, losing Embiid will be massive. It will change how they play everything. Maybe we see Simmons at the five, as we saw in game five versus the Wizards. And then obviously you're gaining some versatility, but you're losing some incredibly value rim protection. But I think that the burden is more on them offensively because you now have to hang with a Hawks offense that is pretty high powered and is led by an incredible offensive engine, who I think they're pretty well equipped to combat. And I'll talk about that in a bit too. But I look at a couple key matchups. First one is Tobias Harris versus DeAndre Hunter because if Embiid isn't out there or if Embiid isn't fully himself even, then Toby's going to have to be the number one offensive option. And if Joel isn't out there or isn't himself and they start sending multiple guys Toby's way, he has to be able to playmake at a level that he's probably not comfortable with because his job is isolation bucket getting. It is shot making. It is not decision-making. It is not creating for others. But now he might be put in a position where he has to be a Julius Randle type because they just don't respect enough players out there offensively. And they're going to say, okay, we'll force these other guys to make shots and we'll force you to make good decisions. So if that happens, Philly's in trouble. 
even if that doesn't happen, Toby is obviously an expert of difficult shot making. Like so much of what he does is in that mid-range, high post area. It's a lot of jump shooting. But Hunter is going to make all of that hard. He's going to make it hard to get to your spots. He's going to affect those shots, as we saw with Julius Randle, who just shot two of 23 from mid-range. So I think that's a key matchup. And then Simmons is going to be fascinating because the question is, how does he attack when the Hawks don't have a perimeter counter for him if Hunter is on Toby, which I assume is what they'll do because Toby is the more imposing scoring threat. So that means that you're looking at bogey on Simmons for the majority of the minutes. Bogey cannot hang with him strength-wise. He can't hang with him quickness-wise really either, but the Hawks have Clint Capella, and Clint Capella completely eradicates the area in which Simmons is going to operate almost the entire time. So what does he do then? Because Capella is not going to have to leave the paint all that much. I think that they can either put him on Simmons and say, okay, we'll give Simmons runway. We're just not going to respect him outside of the paint. Or they can put him on when Tybel's out there, Tybel, any shooter who they don't respect all that much because obviously they want to keep Capella in the paint as much as possible. And then how does Ben Simmons score? How does he have an impact in the half court? I don't know. That's a very concerning matchup for him in my opinion. And so I'm a little worried about that then when a guy who may have to be your second best offensive player in this series, if Embiid isn't himself, has such a challenging matchup on his plate. I wouldn't even worry about it. Like I have the, that's the exact key I have for the Hawks defense. And that is, I am funneling Ben Simmons into the paint all game Mm -hmm. long. I am going to let Capella eat. And that's why I don't think it matters. Even if you put a guy like Trey Young on Ben Simmons. Yeah. Ben is going to blow by Trey all game long, but then he's got to figure out how to score on Capella. And I trust Capella to shut anybody down. He has been, I'd say the best rim protector of these playoffs so far. Um, I'm telling you, I just I wouldn't worry about it. I'd say put anybody on Ben Simmons if he blows by them. He has got to go up against one of the best rim protectors in the league. I think Ben Simmons is just a a non-factor on offense. I don't even worry about him. Don't you cons- don't you get worried about him creating shots for others then though? If you're constantly having to send a second defender at him, I don't even mean send a second. Like if Trey gets blown by, just bump out. Go to Curry. Find a shooter. Find Danny Green. Okay. Like just relocate. I wouldn't even. Mm-hmm. He's just, he's not going to put up shots in the mid-range. The only place he is going to attempt is down low on that low block. And if you're running sets with Capella or if John Collins is on the floor, I'm really not worried at all. Why not just put Capella on Simmons then? That could work too. I mean, you just play him. Yeah, I mean, you drop him down to the restricted area and say, don't come out of the paint. And that could work too. I just think that, I think you highlighted it perfectly. Any way you carve this up. This is an uphill battle for Philly um, offensively. And not only are you going to have to rely on Tobias Harris to create all this, uh, which I'm sure you're getting into here, Danny Green and Seth Curry can't miss. And you're also mm-hmm. going to ask a, uh, you're going to have to ask a, you know, a large, you're going to have to get a lot of production out of Shake Milton and Tyrese Maxey off the bench mm-hmm. to keep yourselves in the ball ballgame. Um, I think all of those guys are more importantly offensively than Ben Simmons, though. I would just count on him for, for nothing at this point. Interesting. And this is the peril that we've talked about all year with the Sixers. Do they have enough offensive firepower compared to other contenders? With Embiid out there, maybe. With Embiid not out there, no. I'm sorry, so do we have any update on where he is health-wise? Like, is he going to play in this series? They say that he is, like, questionable for Game 1, I believe. I assume that he's going to play in this series, but we really don't know. Yeah, last update is that they are still uncertain on Joel Embiid's Game 1 status versus the Hawks. So, there you go. Let's look at the Hawks for a second here. 
What else do you think is going to be key for them in this one? Something that concerns me is the assets that Philly still does have defensively against a guy like Trey Young, and that's, you know, I mean, if you stick Ben Simmons on Trey Young, he's going to take away not only uh, his own creation in the mid-range, putting up those floaters, getting into the paint right off of the roll. He's going to take away passing angles for these shooters. And so my biggest concern is if somehow, if Philly comes up with a game plan to slow down Trey Young, stop him from creating all of these shots for his teammates, is there going to be somebody to step up and create for the rest of this roster? Obviously, I think the guy to pick on is Bogey, and I think he will be able to create uh, shots for these teammates around him. He stepped up in the back half of the season. He stepped up in this first playoff series. I've got ultimate faith in him. So basically it's, do I trust these other guys to create enough shots? Or if you want to take a look at it, Carson, do you think it's possible to stop? Can you slow down Trey Young? Is Ben Simmons, can they shut down Trey Young? Not completely, but can they limit him enough to force the ball to bogey? I think that they can make it as hard on him as literally anybody in basketball because in every non-Simmons minute, you can put Tease on him. And that is just a level of length that he has not had to deal with and will not have to deal with pretty much ever again in his career. Like you have a couple guys with just absurd length with Tease, the ability to affect a shot from anywhere with Simmons, some of the best hands in basketball. Tease is some of the best hands as well. And that just has to be priority number one for them is Keep him from getting into the lane because with every screen that is set for Trey Young, every time he gets into that mid-range area, you are now opened up to be dissected. And I do think if Embiid is there, that's massive as well because that is a dude who just takes up so much space that he can play two as well as anybody. Like, is he going to be able to fully take away the lob and the Trey Young floater at once? No, that is why it is such deadly offense. But I do think that he can affect Trey's shots without clearly giving up the angle for the lob as well better than most. And so that would be key. But it's just about keeping him from getting into the lane. It's about forcing Trey to take jumpers, which is hilarious because his shot is so lethal. But the more threes that he takes in this series, I think that these guys with their length can affect them for the most part. And I do not want him getting into that floater territory where it's lob, kick, floater and it's pretty much automatic for him so I do think that Simmons and Tybal can affect that because I think that they're stronger I think that they are obviously much much longer they have incredible instincts they have good anticipation they have good feet they have everything that you need to make life hard on Trey and they shouldn't tire out because again you play Tease 20 minutes a game you have him on Trey every second of those 20 minutes and so I think that that's massive but I completely agree with you the Hawks need Bogey to be a legitimate second star he was phenomenal down the stretch of this regular season. I think he was subpar against the Knicks. 14.4 game on 33% from deep. He has to be much better than that to take the Hawks offense to the next level. He was just spotty. And I think that in game four, when the Hawks had their offensive explosion, you saw when Bogey is cooking, when he is knocking down his shots, this whole team is going. And I just think this Sixers defense is too good for the Hawks to be so reliant on one guy. Because against the Knicks, Trey pretty much created everything. And it worked. But now you're looking at maybe the two best perimeter defenders in basketball guarding your one best player with, if Embiid is healthy, a crazy imposing rim protector in there. Everything has changed now. And you need other guys who can get their own stuff off the bounce, who can create for others. That is Bogey's role. That is what he was down the stretch of this regular season. And that is what he has to be if they are going to survive this challenge. So I completely agree with you that he is the key guy. And it's wild that we don't even know if Embiid is going to be out there, what he's going to look like, because that changes everything in this series. If he's not out there, we're talking about a team 
It was 10 and 11 in the regular season in non-Embiid games. I just don't think they're winning this series without Joel Embiid, their best player offensively, and obviously a game-changing player defensively as well, because I don't think they have reliable enough offense. I don't know that you can expect Toby to play like he did last series, and I don't know if Simmons can be a play-to-play factor, and I don't know if these guys are going to shoot well enough. And Shake Milton, we love him, he barely played last series. Like, I don't know if they have faith in him to be that big-time shot maker right now. So there's just so many questions. I would take the Hawks in six, I guess, if MB doesn't play. I almost want to take them in five because I think that that's just not enough offensive punch from Philly to contend. If Embiid is healthy, though, I still think the Sixers are the better of the two teams here. But I think the Hawks are scary to anybody. What do you think overall? How do you factor all of that into what you're expecting from this series? If Embiid is healthy and is 50 to 75%, I am taking the Sixers in seven. If he doesn't play, if he's out, I'm taking the Hawks in seven. Either way, I think this series goes the distance. I think it's really evenly matched. And like, I don't know, like I still expect a few games like we saw against the Knicks. Um, Obviously, it was just one where they won, but I expect Philly's defense to be good enough one game to hold, or a few games to hold the Knicks under, or excuse me, the Knicks, the Hawks under 100 points and make life tough. Um, I don't want to just completely discredit them, but I think I think this goes the distance either way, but it's completely dependent on Embiid. Although, a few guys that we haven't mentioned, uh, you mentioned Shake Milton not playing a whole lot. I think George Hill could have a big effect on this series. Um, I think Dwight Howard could have a big effect on this series as well if they need, if they're getting bullied in the paint. And I think on the Hawks side, a couple of guys that we didn't mention, um, Lou Williams, like in stretches, man, if Lou gets hot, he can fill it up and... Uh, create some distance between the teams. And if Kevin Herter's knocking down his shot, he can swing this series. But I think it goes the distance officially right now. I will say Hawks in seven. Interesting. I don't even know what to say because we don't know what's going to go on with Embiid. But I will say that if we do see him, he's not going to be himself. Like you mentioned it. Maybe he's in that 50 to 75% range. We are not getting the MVP Joel Embiid. I wouldn't think if we do and he wasn't able to play last game, that would be kind of a miracle for them. I don't want to make an official prediction because I just don't even know what I'm working with at this point, but I'll make two predictions then. I'll say if Embiid doesn't play Hawks in six, if Embiid is something like himself, Sixers in seven, but I almost want to take Hawks there, man. I think I will stick with the Sixers there because they're too good defensively and Embiid, no matter what state he's in, is going to demand attention down low and Capella is a great defensive player, but he is not massive enough to actually make life hard on Joel Embiid. And so much of Embiid's game now is about just the pure shot making, the mid-range stuff. So I don't know that he's as dependent on being an explosive athlete as a lot of other stars are. Like, he can just put on a skill performance and he can take you out that way. So I'll go with those two realities. Hawks and six if Embiid doesn't play. Sixers and seven if Embiid does play and is at least capable of of being out there for seven games and again is obviously not himself but is something like the Joel Embiid we know okay let's move on now to the other series out east the one that is kicking off this playoff bonanza as far as the second round goes Bucks Nets what's key to this one in your eyes so I love this series I'm going to go on record right now I think whoever wins this series is going to the finals uh, out of the east Um, I don't know if that's a hot take at this point, considering what we're working out uh, with the other series. Um, I just think that Milwaukee has the best chance to knock out uh, 
the Brooklyn out of any of these teams. Obviously, they're two earlier matchups. Uh, the Bucks won 124-118, and in the game previous, won 117-114. Both really close, high-contested games, and obviously James Harden was not healthy for those games, but it's not often you see the Nets lose back-to-back -back games, especially to the same team. I think for, uh, for Milwaukee, I think my biggest concern just has to be how they play defensively, and I know this is tired. We talk about this all the time. Teams make the most threes against them, they attempt the second most, and teams make the third mm -hmm. highest percentage of their threes against the Bucks. It's the Mike Budenholzer defense. It's why they got taken out from the playoffs last year against Miami. It's why I was scared that Miami might be able to get hot shooting and win this series, but the Nets shot 43% from behind the arc in their first series against the Celtics. Durant, Harden, and Harris were all over 47% from deep. In the regular season, they were the second-best three-point shooting team in the NBA. If Milwaukee gives the Nets shots from behind the arc, they will not win this series. I think that is pretty simple, and I think that has to be your primary focus if you are Milwaukee, is just completely changing the style of your defense. You cannot give the Nets offense anything because they will make you pay. Yeah, dropping Brooke Lopez doesn't do anything against three of the best perimeter shot makers and two of the best mid-range shot makers in the NBA. It just doesn't make sense, and it's going to be fascinating to see what Bud does because I think he was given some credit for a little bit more malleability against the Heat, actually attacking some matchups, doing stuff that normally in his rigid ways he doesn't do. But I don't know if it's enough to really uproot the system that he has built this defense that was the best in the league for a couple years on, but that obviously never held up the same way in the playoffs. So I think that's massive, and that's the thing. Nobody's going to be able to stop the Nets. It's just about who has enough firepower to hang with them and who can keep them from going absolutely berserk. And I do think that the Bucks have an interesting formula to maybe be able to do that, but I also think it does matter that they took a step back defensively, and it matters a lot that they lost Dante DiVincenzo. And that is one of the keys that I'm going to look at for them in this series. The play of Pat Connaughton and Bryn Forbes. Because when you are compensating for the loss of DiVincenzo, it's going to be tough. DiVincenzo is a valuable Swiss Army Knife player, a plus defender, a guy who can knock down open shots, who will cut to the bucket, who will make good decisions as a playmaker. And I'm assuming Connaughton is going to start now. He started in Game 4 against the Heat. And you can't necessarily attack him if you're the Nets, he's not a bad defender. Like, he has length, he has some physical tools, but he will certainly be the weak point on the court, and they are going to go after him. I mean, they're going to attack him, even if he's not a bad defender, because you want to avoid Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton, Giannis Antetokounmpo, these guys who are somewhere between plus defenders and, for Giannis and Drew Holiday, real all-defense-level guys. And then when Forbes plays, and he's going to play probably 20-plus minutes, you would think, at least to start, he will be eaten alive. And that's why I wonder, as great as Forbes just was, he put up 15 a game against the Heat and was unreal shooting. I don't know how much you can play him at all here, because if you're going to match him up with Kyrie and Harden, and they're going to be able to initiate either that switch, or they're going to just start a possession matched up with him, he is going to get destroyed. And so that hurts this Milwaukee team a lot, losing that offense and having to look somewhere else for those minutes because I don't even know who they go to. I guess you just play Connaughton a ton. That's not great. And so that's why it's such a bummer that DiVincenzo is out because he may be their fifth best player, but he is impactful in this matchup. No, I mean, I think that if you don't play Bryn Forbes, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot. Like, he has been that important for this Milwaukee mm -hmm. team in their two previous wins versus the Nets. He made four and three three-pointers. 
and in this last series. I mean, he can just get hot at the drop of a dime. He is a he's a dominant shooter. I think you have to play him if you're Milwaukee or you don't stand a chance. And it's interesting you bring that up uh, about their offense. I think Milwaukee has another route uh, to a victory uh, on the offensive end, and that is against Brooklyn's interior defense. Um, uh, I mm. talk about the last two matchups. Giannis bodied Blake and Jeff Green on the inside. He went for 49-36, to 36, shot a lot of free throws. That is going to be key. How many, how many times does he get sent to the line, and how does he capitalize? And you can look at the numbers, too. In this... Uh, in this last series against Boston, uh, players shot 20% higher than their average uh, inside six feet on Blake Griffin, and Jeff Green held players to 1% lower than their average inside six feet. They're just not they're not good rim protectors. We've known this all year. Without DeAndre Jordan in there, it's going to be tough. Um, but it's not just Giannis who is going to be able to bully these guys on the inside. I mean, it's Bobby Portis off of the roll. It's Brooke Lopez on the inside off of the roll um, and being able to move those guys out of the paint, stretching the floor, both of them. It is... The Nets are undersized on the interior. They don't have a dominant rim protector outside of DeAndre Jordan, and I wouldn't call him dominant at this point in his career. It is going to be a tough matchup against two big guys who can stretch the floor and play big on smaller guys in Portis and Lopez, and it's always tough guarding Giannis on the interior and trying to limit him and how many free throws he takes. Now, it's always interesting how they guard him. You know, Blake will drop down to inside the restricted area. He will literally not go out and guard Giannis at all, but doesn't matter. He's too strong for Blake. He's too strong for Jeff Green. That's where they're going to get the bulk of their points. I still don't think that is as important as the Bucks knocking down their threes to stay in this game, but they're going to be able to get reliable offense each and every trip down if they are trotting out a lineup with Jeff Green or Blake Griffin. Completely agree. And DJ is back, so he'll play in game one. Jeff Green is still out for now, but he may be back later in this series. But I completely agree with you. To me, it's partly about interior defense, but it's also just about who can make Giannis uncomfortable because, obviously, I have been generally sour on Giannis's playoff value and was even before, actually, we really saw the flaws fully exposed, just predictively saying this is not going to age as well into postseason basketball. But the teams that we have seen take out the Bucks have been very well equipped to play Giannis. Like, we're talking about the Raptors, who had multiple real quality bodies they could throw at him. A Kawhi, a Pascal Siakam, an OG, a great team defense. And then we saw the heat with their rotation of Bam, Jimmy, Jay Crowder, Iggy. And the Nets don't have anything close to that. Like, they are really poorly equipped to handle Giannis. Lord knows they didn't even have a Tatum stopper, and he does not compare in just the physical, unstoppable factor that defines Giannis. As you mentioned, he averaged 40-11-5 versus them in the regular season. And part of that was he shot abnormally well from deep, but he ate this team alive. And so I don't think Blake is the answer. I think that it's either Katie or it is DeAndre Jordan slash Nick Claxton, whoever you're playing at the five in whatever minutes. And I think it's probably KD. Like, I think this has to be the moment where we see what level can KD get to defensively because obviously... It's not like he's been consistently impactful this year. We've seen stretches in his career where he was. I don't know that he can make Giannis uncomfortable, but you try to build the wall somehow, I guess. I just don't know if they can do it. Like, I think that there's too much shooting in Milwaukee, and when you don't have anybody who can come close to checking Giannis one-on-one, this offense is going to be really, really hard to stop in a way that we haven't seen them just dominate in the mid to late rounds of the playoffs previously because, again, they've gone against really strong defenses and now they're going against a bad defense 
And I think that that is going to allow us to see a level of playoff Giannis that we haven't seen on a stage this big previously. So that's going to be really interesting. What do you think? Who is the guy who they even put on Giannis? Do they mix things up? What's their approach? I think you laid out the three guys. Um, You've got KD, but I'm skeptical just because of how he performed against Tatum. I'd go DJ and Claxton. I mean, the Nets defense has been really good with Claxton on the floor. And again, with a guy like Giannis, you're not going to have to come out of the paint. You're just going to camp down there, make sure you don't get a three-second call, and try to big body him. With a rotation like that, that's what I'm doing all game. I'm going to let DJ and Claxton just try to out-muscle, out-body, send him to the line, make him tired, play physical, and cross your fingers. Yeah. It just concerns me a bit giving him that kind of runway to where you're saying, okay, we're literally just going to drop a big man because I kind of feel like you need to get a body on him first. And then maybe you just say, we're going to leave DJ or Claxton in the paint anyways and we'll have Brooke Lopez beat us. But that's a dangerous game to play. Like, I just don't think they have a good answer. It sucks. It's exactly like you said. Like, they just don't have anyone. They could have gone out and gotten literally any strong perimeter defender who could... I mean, you don't even have to, like, take him out. Just be able to D him up and stay in front of him from the three-point line. They don't have... (laughs) They don't have a single-plus defender on this team. Yeah. I'll throw out another key for the Bucs on the offensive end here. I think Chris Middleton closing is going to be massive because... A while back, I read out how terrible his clutch numbers had been for a few years running now, both regular season and playoffs. He obviously had a great moment in game one against the Heat and then certainly didn't need to perform in the clutch after that. But he is far and away, obviously, the Bucks' best difficult shot maker. He's the guy they're going to lean on. And Lord knows the Nets are going to be absurd in closing minutes. And when the game does become just about half-court creation, one-on-one isolation, as basketball always turns into in those last couple minutes... The Bucs need a counter. They need a guy who can hang with some combination of KD, Kyrie, and James Harden. And that task is going to be on Chris Middleton. And assuming that these games are close going into the last few minutes, which I think they will be, that's where things are going to be decided. And I think that's a tiebreaker that leans in Brooklyn's favor. And it's part of the reason that I would have them in seven. I mean, I also just think offensively they have even more firepower, but they also have less defensively than the Bucs, obviously. But again, when it comes to tiebreakers, I'm going to lead on the team that has the best big-time shot makers, that has the most guys who can create their own bucket in those big moments, and that is 100% what the Nets have over the Bucs, and it's up to Middleton to compensate for that. I feel the exact same way. I'll just ask you, I mean, do you trust Chris Middleton at this point? What a tough question. It's always so weird with him because every indication should be this guy can close big games. Like at his height with his ability to knock down shots from the mid-range from beyond the arc, his ability to create out of the pick and roll out of isolation, like everything should say this guy can be a big time shot maker. I don't think I trust him enough to overcome what's on the other side. Like he may play well and if he does, he's going to continue to give them a chance. I don't know if he plays well enough though considering the three-headed monster that he's going to be going up against defensively, if you're Milwaukee, who are you putting on who? So I am probably putting as much as I possibly can Giannis on KD. I think that that one's kind of a no-brainer. And then I'm going, or actually, maybe it's not a no-brainer because maybe you want Milton on KD and then you want Giannis as a help defender as much as possible because who really cares what Blake does? Not me. I'm not all that concerned about it. And then... With Drew and Connaughton, 
I guess I'm putting Drew on Harden as much as I can, but either way, you're kind of losing at one of those battles at the guard spot. And I think that we're going to just have to see, we're probably going to see a combination of things. We're going to see a bunch of guys guarding a bunch of guys out there. And I don't know how much it matters. Like your personnel personally, I don't know that anybody is making a massive difference on one player other than maybe Giannis on KD. And maybe that is where you can actually have game changing impact is Giannis making KD uncomfortable, but who have we ever seen actually really make KD uncomfortable in meaningful moments? I would argue that we've never seen it. And you know what, man? This may seem crazy. I think I'd put Middleton on KD. I think I'd put Drew mm -hmm. on Kyrie. And I think I'd put Giannis on Harden. And I, the reason Whoa. being, one, the little bit of beef that Giannis and Harden already have, I'd think that, I'd hope that Giannis would come up and I don't know, play a little more aggressive, play a little hard, try to drain him. But I also think that, I think Harden's the scariest offensive player out of all three of these guys. And I don't mean that, you know, yeah. a difficult shot making. I just mean the way that Harden can just isolate, take these possessions all by himself and create for other people, find these passing angles. I'd put Giannis on him and just try to get the ball out of Harden's hands as much as possible. Um, make KD and Kyrie play make. And that would be my goal if I was Milwaukee on defense. I, It just sucks, man, because I don't think... I think KD probably burns Middleton. The Nets are just so overpowered, man. They are. And obviously, you put Pat Connaughton on a not-so-imposing offensive threat in Blake, but Blake could bully him. And yeah. you're still giving up buckets there. But maybe that's what you prefer to a comfortable Harden, Kyrie, and KD. At the end of the day, I think we'll see again a number of things, and I think the Bucks will... Just try to figure this out throughout the series. But I don't think they'll find a definitive answer. So I'm going to stick with what I thought was going to happen before these playoffs. I would go Nets in seven. What do you think? I'm going Nets in six. Yeah. Going to be a great series. Going to be really fun to see how Giannis hangs in this big time situation. And again, I think he's going to perform well. I just don't think that they can make the Nets uncomfortable. I don't know who can. And I think the Bucks are as good of a matchup for anybody as there is for the Nets because, again, they do have really good defensive personnel. They're going to shoot the hell out of the ball on the other end, and they're going to put up a lot of points. They can run and gun and score with the Nets. I just don't know if I can trust them to score with them at that level. All right, let's go out west here to the series that is definitively going to happen. That is Nuggets versus Suns. And obviously, we don't know who the Jazz are going to be playing yet, so I guess we'll address briefly both possibilities of that matchup. But let's start with this one. What's key to you in this Nuggets-Suns matchup? Uh, I think there's two big keys. I'm going to look at the Denver side uh, for right now. And my biggest concern is, can anyone step up and slow down Devin Booker uh, on the perimeter? I mean, I just don't know what's going to work against this guy in a playoff scenario. You can't send two at him. The Lakers tried all game. They got picked apart. When you don't send two on him, he lights you up for damn near 50. Um He's great in the mid-range. Like, I just don't know if... I just don't know if Denver has anybody they can say, yeah, stick on him and try your hardest. I assume it's probably going to be Aaron Gordon that is tasked with playing all game long on D-Book, mm -hmm. but I just don't know if it matters. And on the other end, it's the same spot with Jokic and probably a guy like DeAndre Ayton, but I just... I like the Suns personnel so much better. I mean, if you get a switch on Macau Bridges, if you get a switch on Jay Crowder on Jokic, I like all of those possibilities more... If you get a switch on D-Book off, of, uh, off of a guy like Gordon, <laughs> MPJ is getting cooked. Yeah, Monte Morris is getting cooked. Jokic is getting cooked. I just don't think there's anybody that can guard Devin Booker in this series, and I think that has to be the chief concern 
for Denver. What do you throw at him? How do you play him defensively? What do you take away? I don't think you can. I don't think the Nuggets have the personnel. I think they probably get lit up by D-Book in this series, but I think that's the number one concern. Who the hell do you put on D-Book, and what do you do defensively to try to X him out? Well, I think it's 100% Aaron Gordon, and I think that the Nuggets let way too many guys have a crack at Dame in this Blazers series. We saw a combination of guys, Faku, Gordon, Austin Rivers, MPJ, as you mentioned, way too much, who just got torched time and again. I think it has to be Gordon because he has the length to somewhat affect those mid-range pull-ups that Book's game is so predicated upon, and Book is not the kind of explosive athlete who's going to blow by guys. So it's not like Dame where, okay, AG isn't quite quick enough. AG is good on his feet, and he's going to be able to move with Book. So I think he is the obvious answer, and Book is going to have separation created for him in ways that isn't just off the bounce. Like, he's going to come off of screens, and he's going to obviously have picks set for him and all this stuff that is going to make it hard on Gordon. But that is his number one priority in this series. Make Devin Booker uncomfortable. Anything he does offensively is kind of just a cherry on top, in my opinion. And he was assertive in stretches offensively against the Blazers and played pretty well there and shot the ball well and deserves credit for all of that. But it's about what he can do defensively. And then if they do find a way to make him uncomfortable, I think this comes down to who are the other difference makers for Phoenix. And that leads into something that I think is going to be very key in this series. And Logan, I can't believe I'm saying this. I'm so overjoyed that this is actually going to matter in playoff basketball. The battle of campaign versus Monte Morris, because both teams are abnormally dependent on these guys as second creators. Like, that is what these two are. They are the second creators for their teams right now who are squaring off in a second-round playoff series and are important both creating for themselves and for others. They are effectively their team's best point guards, assuming that CP isn't himself, and maybe CP gets back to what he normally looks like later in this series. We obviously saw that stretch in Game 5 where he looked like CP, and so maybe the recovery time isn't that steep. But he's going to start the series not being himself probably, and that is a additional burden on campaign, the ultimate slithery bucket and creative playmaker. And they were huge in this last series. Both of them were. Monte in wins averaged 17 and a half and six and a half. And Cam in games two through five averaged 16 and four and a half. You need guys who can keep defenses honest and saying, okay, you can't just double Jokic or book every time and who can knock down shots and make good decisions. And you also need guys who can run the offense when those two aren't on the floor and who can facilitate and get their own bucket. And that's what these two are. And if you don't think that's key, Logan, I think that you're tripping because I don't know how it couldn't be. They are the number two guys offensively for their teams right now as far as actually creating. And that's a massive burden. And I'm fascinated by how they both handle it, but they both handled it pretty damn well last series. I'm just laughing because I know this is your little, your dirty little basketball fantasy. Um, it is. It's my dream. I mean, like in the first month, I think <laughs> the first month of this season, I think I heard way too Monte Morris and campaign stuff uh, out of you. I will say, if there's any, if you're just, you know, I, I, I'm going to set the scene. Say you're out at, you know, at this coffee shop, right? You know, you're just out about your day. You're going to grab some coffee. You see this gangly white dude, about six three and a half, right? He walks in. He gets a he gets a cappuccino, right? He just starts spitballing about this random point guard you've you've never heard of. Take notes, all right? If Carson brings up some goofy little bench point guard like Facundo Campazzo, like Monte Morris, like Campaign, like 
just listen to him, okay? Carson, you have not steered me wrong in a single point guard, I think, this season. And I think it's exemplified by the impact that Monte and Cam have had on these playoffs and on this season as a whole. Um, Monte was imperative last series, especially in this last game. Um, he doesn't make, you know, groundbreaking passes like a LeBron, a CP3, but he makes good, smart reads out of the pick and roll. I think he is the second... He might be the second most important player for the Nuggets this series. I think you could argue MPJ. Um, and yeah, both of these guys are going to be huge. I'm I'm so disappointed that we've gotten to this part in the season where you can flex your little campaign and Monte Morris fan club muscles. Yeah, I think this is the most important for creating reliable offense because Aiden's going to try to uh, take out Jokic. Gordon's going to try to take out Book. These guys are going to be the secondary creators to this roster. It's a huge matchup. I can't believe... I'm just in disbelief that this is where we are in the playoffs. You know, my champion may go out in the first round, but you're damn sure I'm going to tell you about rich role players matter four months out, baby. And that's what we've seen here. Campaign. The Bulls set. Second practice. We knew he wasn't an NBA guy. Really? He's more like an MVP guy. That's right. <laughs> Game-changing player. Campaign. Big-time players make big-time plays. That is what both Cam and Monte did in this last series. Enough on that, though. What are some other keys to this one in your eyes? So I'm going to briefly touch on that, and then I'm going to get into my other key. Um, yeah, uh, another key for the Nuggets before I get into the Suns' keys, Monte Morris and MPJ have to pull their offensive weight. I just want to use this to bring up MPJ, which will segue into what I think the Suns' defense has to do. 19-7 um, and seven on 54-42-91 shooting splits. MPJ is an absolute buck. Uh, you saw in this last game against the Blazers. Uh, I mean, that first and second quarter, absolutely disgusting, man. MPJ was pulling up from everywhere, mm -hmm. fading away, dudes in his mouth, and he's just knocking down everything. So I think the biggest key for Phoenix here is just going to be smart, timely rotations from Bridges, Crowder, and Aiden, and that is on Jokic and MPJ all game long. I don't care where Jokic is setting a screen, if they're doing that little top-of-the-key action where MPJ rolls off. I need somebody there in his jaw all game long just making life tough on MPJ, and it's not like you can't do it. Uh, you saw the Blazers in Game 3, I think, limited MPJ to three shots. You can X MPJ out of a game plan if you play hard enough, and I think the Suns have the best personnel defensively out of anyone to slow down this Nuggets attack, maybe outside of Utah. But I just like, I love the wing defense that Crowder and Bridges give you. I love the switchability that Aiden has now. Um, they are just going to have to pick apart the pick and roll defensively from the Nuggets. And I think they can do it. Um, just because the Nuggets are down on difference makers, having to trust in MPJ and Morris and Bridges and Crowder, two of the best wing defenders in the game. Uh, I think that is the biggest key for Phoenix, just slowing down what you can out of the pick and roll and pick and pop from Denver. Yeah. MPJ is going to be interesting here. Personally, you can't ever take him away because obviously it's all difficult shot making, but I do think he's not getting anywhere on Bridges. He's obviously not getting by him, but he doesn't get by people all that much anyways. And those jump shots are going to become a little bit tougher when you have the world's freakiest long arms right in your face. So that's going to be an interesting matchup. But at the end of the day, I just don't think the Suns can really take away what the Nuggets do offensively. And that's why I think this is going to be a really competitive series. Like, I think I'm leaning Suns in seven. And I could not pick the Nuggets outright. I don't think that they have enough difference makers. 
And obviously, this is going to be a different series than what we saw against the Blazers, where they had nobody, nobody who could hang with Jokic one-on-one. Like, Aiton obviously has the length, the strength, and the tools to make life harder on Jokic as we saw this regular season. He's still going to cook him, but he can make it harder, and he can hang with him one-on-one, and they won't have to send help, which is when Jokic is deadliest, is when you're doubling him. But I still don't think you can stop him from getting his efficient 30 and from creating really good shots for others. And those guys are knocking down shots right now. And if Will Barton comes back, then you have another creator into the mix and you don't have to play a guy like Marcus Howard. So you're taking a massive liability off the floor defensively. You're getting better offensively. You're getting a guy who can play, make, and score. And I just don't think that level of offense can be taken out when they are a competent team defensively. And the Suns aren't going to explode in this series offensively. Like, obviously, they didn't against the Lakers. Part of that was the tempo. It was slow. It was physical. The Lakers are the best defense in basketball. But they're not just going to run it up against the Nuggets, and the Nuggets aren't going to be the kind of team that you can stop. So because of that, and the fact that who knows what's going on with CP, I think this is a really tough series. I mean, that was exactly what I was going to lay out as the reason for why I'm taking the Nuggets in this series. I don't know how you can say all that and still go with the Suns. Wow. I'll tell you how. Because because they're without three of their top four guards. And like Monte Morris is maybe their second most important player in this series. That's just perilous. But you're right. Maybe I should. I just think the Suns have so many guys who I can rely on to make shots, to play two-way basketball. But you're right. Without CP, this is going to be dangerous for them. Like, this is going to be really dangerous. This is not the Lakers without AD who can't score and who can't knock down open shots. The Nuggets guys make shots, they play hard, they play together, and they have, I'll say it, the best player in the world, all right? We're going to go there. I'm I'm dropping the maybe. No maybe anymore. With what we just saw from LeBron, Nikola Jokic is the best player in the world. You make a compelling case, Logan. I guess actually I made the case, and you just said I was going to say that. (laughs) But I'm so persuasive, I've almost gotten myself on the train. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to disrespect Phoenix. They're so I just, good. I mean, with what we've seen in these playoffs so far, it seems like everything has been who can create more reliable offense and not be you know absolutely atrocious defensively, right? Uh, the mm. Lakers can't create anything without LeBron, so the Suns win, even though the Lakers are the better defensive team. The Nuggets run the Blazers off the floor. Um I don't know, man. To me, it just seems like, yeah, no, the Suns clearly have a better defense than the Nuggets. I completely trust Mm -hmm. them way more. But without Chris Paul, I think the offenses are very comparable. And what offensive engine do I trust more, D-Book or Nikola Jokic? I trust Jokic. It's it's so close. It is so evenly matched with Chris Paul off the floor. But yeah, I guess for me, part of it is I kind of have a feeling that CP is going to be something like himself by the end of this series. And when that happens, I think they just have two guys who are too reliable compared to what the Nuggets have. And they have two big-time late-game shot makers. But man, this is going to be fun. I will not be surprised if the Nuggets win. But I'm just going to bet on the Suns. I think they're the better team top to bottom. I think they're the better two-way team. I trust their shooting, and I trust their best player. Not as much as I trust Jokic, obviously, but the guys around them aren't all that comparable. Although, I don't want to sell the Nuggets supporting cash short because the names are not impressive, but these guys are all playing really well right now. I do want to briefly say, though, before we move on to any other series, I'd like to deeply apologize to all of our Phoenix Suns viewers out, you know... uh... (laughs) 
for neither of us picking the Lakers, uh, for just kind of writing yeah. them off. Um, I don't feel good about that. And honestly, I apologize for not taking the Suns in this series. I think this is a very winnable series for both squads. I think it's going to be close. And if I'm being completely honest, I mean, I could very well see a world in which the Suns win the finals this year if CP3 comes back and is fully healthy by the end of this series. That being said, yeah, I'm going to stick with the Nuggets. All right. Well, we will slightly disagree there, but it's very close for me as well. I think it's going to be an amazing series. All right. So let's move on now to the couple of hypothetical matchups. So we don't know what it's going to be. Let's start with what we could see in Jazz Clippers. What are some of the keys to that hypothetical matchup in your eyes? Uh, I think the biggest key is just going to be what else do we get out of like Paul George, out of these other creators, not just Paul, Reggie Jackson, Rondo. Are we going to be able to see genuine creation from these guys outside? Because every possession down against Dallas, it is. Every possession this season, what am I talking about? Hey, Kawhi, run a pick and roll. PG, run a pick and roll. I don't. That's not going to work against the Jazz. The Jazz is going to pick that apart. Rudy Gobert is going to eat on you. They're going to force you to take tough twos. They're going to take threes away from this Clippers roster. And I think the Jazz win. I just don't think that... I think with Kawhi playing the way he has as maybe the best player in these playoffs so far, I genuinely mean that outside of maybe Jokic... I just don't think with the supporting cast where the Clippers are at, they can win this series with how they've been shooting, with the lack of creation we've gotten from other superstars, and with how dominant defensively the Jazz are. I just think, one, simply for the Clippers, you have to get better shooting out of your supporting cast, and you have got to get... Rondo has got to create. Reggie Jackson has got to create. It cannot just be Kawhi and PG every single trip down. Um, and I'd pick Rondo. He's been excellent in this series. I just think you need more playmaking, better shooting, Either way, I don't like a hypothetical for the Clippers against the Jazz with how they've been shooting from behind the arc, and that is going to be the most important factor, as it has been all season long for the Clippers, as it is going to be against one of the other best three-point shooting teams in the league like the Jazz. I think those are the first two things, and it all revolves around the Clippers' offense. Yeah, it'll always come down to pure shooting with the Clippers, and the thing about them needing a third creator is interesting because it certainly feels that way in playoff basketball. They also managed to have one of the best offenses ever without it just because their two guys are so reliable and the shooting around them was so reliable and because of that shooting my first key and question really is does Gobert have his normal impact and this is what I touched on in our playoff preview this is why after saying that I thought the Jazz were the better team I picked the Clippers in seven in this matchup because they are so much less dependent on paint offense than almost any other contender they score the second lowest percentage of their points in the paint out of any team in basketball. And Kawhi and PG don't have to fully penetrate to create good offense. They don't have to get all the way downhill. They will kill you from that mid-range area. They will kill you from beyond the arc. And they will just shuffle by a guy, get to the free throw line, and they'll still have semi-collapse the defense. And then they kick to an open shooter and those guys are going to make 40 plus percent of their opportunities. And I also think they have the opportunity to go small in this series and make life so hard on Gobert to where he has to respect a shooter at all times. Like, there is nobody who he can leave there. If you are playing Marcus Morris or Kawhi effectively at the five, Gobert cannot hang out in the paint. He can't He can't recover quickly enough to affect a 40-something percent shooter in Marcus Morris. And that's how you play Gobert off the floor. Maybe not literally, but that's how you limit his impact. And maybe he can punish them on the other end. Like, it would be a tall task 
for Kawhi to hang with it, but we've seen this small lineup combat Boban at the five and not get absolutely destroyed by it. And yes, it's a different caliber of player, but Boban's a better post scorer than Gobert. It's just about off the roll. Gobert can be obviously a lot more explosive. So I think you go small. I think you make Gobert uncomfortable. And I think you try to kill this team with their shooting. And yes, they make threes harder than anybody else because they have that faith of funneling guys into the paint. But when you funnel a guy like Kawhi or PG into the mid-range, long-term, maybe it's less efficient. But those guys shooting open mid-range jumpers is still good offense. And I think that they would be okay taking that. And so I just don't think he can do what he normally does. Like, he'll still be impactful. I just don't think he will be in the same way as normal. So I don't think they can really take away anything from this Clippers offense compared to what they would take away from most offenses. And that makes this really scary for Utah. No, I actually really like that um, for Los Angeles. I think that is the only way that you can even up this series. I hadn't thought about that, running Kawhi at the five. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, do you think like, do you think they just get bullied on the glass, though? Like, rebounding still matters. Did Can Kawhi hang with Gobert in that regard? I think that he can hang well enough to where the offensive benefit is worth it. I will say, though, uh, in their first three matchups this season, Utah held them to 13 or less threes every single night out. The Clippers are basically league average when they hold them down uh, to that mark. Granted, they only shot, I think, 34% from behind the arc in those uh, three games. It's just, I don't know, it's just tough for me to think that, yeah, you can just completely X out Rudy Gobert out of a game plan when he had such an impact on these first matchups, but... I don't know. If you go small, I think that has to be the recipe because I do not give the Clippers a chance to win if you're running Zubac out there, if you are running... Mm -hmm. (laughs) Maybe Boogie. Actually, man, Boogie can knock down a spot-up jumper. Yeah. Defensively, it's tough with Boogie. But I think that they go small. I think that they stick with the formula that has worked for them in this late stretch of the series against the Mavs, and I think it'll be even more important. And to be clear, they're not going to completely ex-Gobert out but they're going to make life a lot harder on him. And if you can force him to say, I'm going to take advantage of my opportunities offensively, that's where my impact is going to be because I'm too big. But defensively, I can't have my normal impact. That's a win for the Clippers. And so that's going to be an interesting battle. I mean, how does that factor in, though, to like the overall just depth that the Jazz have? In what sense? In the way that like you think schematically... I don't know, I guess, like, running small, like, does it matter when the Jazz can still shoot the lights out? Like, I still trust the Jazz to create just as many threes as the Clippers do. And so, in that regard, like, I don't know if the defensive adjustments still matter in the outcome of this series. Like, I still think even if the Clippers went small, I still might take the Jazz in this series. That's fair. And I understand what you're saying. The Jazz are going to create a ton of great shots from beyond the arc, too. But I think the Clippers are even more lethal shooting. Like, obviously, the Jazz made more this year. They made the most ever, but the Clippers made a higher percentage. I think the Clippers are going to create a bunch of those looks in this series. And another thing it comes down to is I just lean Kawhi when it comes to tiebreakers. It's like what I said against the Mavs. Can Mitchell go toe-to-toe with him in crunch time? I think is going to be huge. And that doesn't mean you force every big shot in Donovan Mitchell's hands, but also he's the kind of player who wants to take all those big shots. He's had his moments, obviously. Last year, he was ridiculous against the Nuggets, but he's not Kawhi Leonard, and so I do think that that is going to matter, and the reason really that I think what we're talking about with the small ball and all that matters is Rudy Gobert is either the Jazz's best or second best player, and when you can limit that guy's impact, that matters a ton, 
And I don't think you can do that to the Clippers on the flip side. And so I think that that's huge. And when it comes to the Mitchell-Kawhi battle, another thing I wonder is, do you think Kawhi guards him? Because if so, I think that that makes life even harder on the Jazz. Like, obviously, they're a machine. They're going to create good shots no matter what. But again, assuming these games are close, when it gets to those last three or four minutes, I lean Clippers because of Kawhi Leonard. Yeah, I get that. It's just, and I would say that the Clippers have the two best, obviously the two best offensive two out of either of these squads with Kawhi and PG. I just, I just think the Jazz are just so much deeper, man. I love this rotation so much more. Uh, Mike Conley played yeah. his ass off against the Grizzlies and was amazing. I mean, granted, you could put Kawhi and PG on Mitchell and Conley all series long, make life tough on them. Yeah, I just, what you said, I think they're a machine. I just don't think it matters when it comes to the overall depth that the Jazz have. I just think they're a better team flat out than the Clippers, and I think that's going to shine through when it gets gritty. I like the Jazz more. I think they are probably a better team, as you said. I think this is a tough matchup, and I'm going to stick with what I said before the playoffs, which was Clips and Seven. What are you thinking here? I think, yeah, I'll go similar, but I'll flip Jazz. I'll go Jazz and Seven. Okay. And again, we don't even know if this is going to happen. Maybe the Clippers still lose Game (laughs) 7. It's almost a 50-50 proposition. So with that in mind, let's talk about the other possibility, Jazz-Mavs. I think the Mavs are much more outmatched here than the Clippers would be. What do you think, though? What are some of the keys here? Yeah, I agree. But the X factor above anyone else, and I know I asked you before the series, you know, if Kawhi and PG can't stop Luka, who the hell can how do you play Luka if you're the Jazz, like with Gobert? Are you bringing him up every time to switch on him? Because I think Luka probably cooks Gobert in one-on-one switching situations. I don't know, man. I kind of like the Mavericks a little more than the Clippers against the Jazz, if I'm going to be completely honest with you. Really? The reason I think that they're just more outmatched is because... The Jazz have so many difference makers, and the Mavs have one. Like, the difference between two great shot creators for themselves and others and one is massive. And Luka has had to play so out of this world in every Mavs win this series. I just don't think you can bet on that. And the Mavs have had to shoot so out of this world in every win this series, like 50-plus percent from deep. And by the way, they still lost a game where they shot 50-plus percent from deep. I just don't think I can count on them to go that berserk against a Jazz defense that I respect so much. But I will say, I have a similar question to what I talked about with the Gobert having his normal impact question against the Clippers because the Mavs can go small too. They can go five shooters at all time. They can play Porzingis at the five for all meaningful minutes and just bring Gobert out of that paint as much as possible. And that's a scary matchup for the Jazz too. I just don't think that they're quite as good of a shooting team as the Clippers are, and I don't love the fact that they don't have a second consistent creator who I can trust. What defender would you put on Luka 1? Would it be Royce O'Neal? Yes. And I think it would be interesting to see if Gobert can take anything away from Luka because, obviously, he doesn't have to get all the way downhill to kill you in the paint. Like, he can just put up floaters on you all day long, and Gobert can affect those, but not in the same way. But I just think there's too much about this Mavs team that isn't fully sustainable. Like, Luka shooting as well he has on step-back threes, on mid-range jumpers, in Maverick wins, I don't think that's fully sustainable, even though he is one of the best players in the world and is a freak. And I love this Mavs team. And I was early on the Mavs train this year. You'll remember, I talked about how scary they could be and how they'd certainly be better than last year. But I just think the Jazz are 
a little too good top to bottom and on both ends. Yeah, you've got me second-guessing myself a little bit just because I am thinking about the cumulative fatigue that Luka's going to have, not only of just yeah. a seven-game series, but just bringing the ball up every time down the floor. It is... Oh, it's got to tire him out. I'm And he is dealing with an injury. Okay, so maybe I don't think they're a better matchup. I still think that the Mavs can, can give him a run. You're right, man. They need a... Josh Richardson just had to pan out this season for the Mavericks to be relevant yep. in the playoffs. They needed desperately that second creator. Brunson can't be that in the big playoff minutes. Um, I'm trying to think what else. Outside of Luka, like, there's not what. Luka's going to, basically, the case for the Mavs is, yeah, Luka's going to create enough shots, so they're going to shoot the lights out, and yeah. they're going to beat the Jazz. Defensively, I don't really know what you have an answer for the Jazz. I think they're going to get their shots regardless. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's an uphill battle for either team. I'm probably going to take the—I'd probably take the Jazz in six if they're playing the Mavs. I agree. I would go Jazz in six. I think that the Mavs going small, quote-unquote, playing KP at the five for the vast majority of their minutes would be interesting. I think it would be somewhat dangerous for the Jazz. I just don't think it's enough. So who's your other three, then? Hardaway, Finney-Smith, and who else? Kleber? Kleba. I would say Kleba for the majority. Yeah. And then Josh Richardson for some of it as well. It's just funny. Sorry, the concept. Uh, yeah, we're playing small. We got a 6'10", a 7'3 guy, a 6'7 point guard. Yeah, you're right. I shouldn't have said playing small. I should have said five shooters at all times. Like, that is the key. Just taking them out of the paint. Because they're not going small. They're just playing five shooters. So, I think that here is where we just see the Jazz are too good of a team. And I don't think the Mavs can do what they've done twice. And maybe they can do it in a game seven. I don't think they can do it in another best of seven. And that's where I'll lean with the team that I just think was consistently better throughout the regular season and projects a little bit better in this matchup. And so there you have it. There is all of our first round takeaways. There is our second round preview. We have a bunch of fun basketball still ahead of us. Logan, any final thoughts on any of this as we wrap this one up? I just want to get it on record. Officially, you were going Clippers here game seven. Yes, over the Mavs. And you are going Mavs. Yes, sir. All right. Well, this is going to be a lot of fun. We'll see how it plays out. Massive task on third year Luka, his plate right now, and it's going to be fun to see how he handles it. But can't wait to see some of this playoff basketball continue to get underway. We've got Bucks and Nets today. That is going to be a load of fun. And if you want to continue to hear our coverage, to hear what we've already said, you can stick around on our YouTube channel. Maybe you're watching here. If you are, then I recommend that you check out the video I just did on how Dame just played the best basketball he ever has, and it still wasn't enough, looking at what made his series against the Nuggets so remarkable and why the Blazers are still so far away. Some of that stuff we touched on today, but much more in-depth analysis of what he just did. And you can also see our full podcasts are posted there. They're also on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your audio content. You can follow us on Twitter at nerd underscore sesh to keep posted with what we're doing. See our video content, graphic content, all that stuff. And you can follow us on Instagram at nerd sesh. And with that, as always, I've been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sash. <laughs>